Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we are sitting down with Paul Bocock of Sustainable Fisheries Partnerships to talk about regenerative aquaculture and all of the benefits and challenges with it. But before we get into that, I want to remind everybody to please subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as they become available. Follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact the podcast for any reason, sponsorship opportunities, you want to be a guest on the show, do you have guest suggestions, fill out our online form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you want to be one of our favorite people in the world, leave a rating or review on whichever podcast platform is your favorite. That's right. So please enjoy this conversation that we had with Paul and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. All right, so we are sitting down today with Paul Bullcock, who is the Aquaculture Information Manager at Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. How's it going, Paul? Oh, it's, oh, it's great. It's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited. Uh, we've been trying to pull this together for some time now, and I'm glad we can finally make it happen. We are going to be talking about uh, regenerative aquaculture, in particular with shrimp farms and mangrove areas. But before we get into that, Paul, I want to learn a little bit about you so our listeners know who they're hearing from. So can you give us kind of your backstory, a little background on who you are and how you got to where you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, so as you heard, my name's uh, Paul. I'm the Aquaculture Information Manager at Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. Uh, give you a bit of background about um, Sustainable Fisheries Partnership or SFP for short. So we're a not-for-profit uh, marine conservation organization. Um, so our unique angle is that we work with major seafood um, buyers and to get them to use their leverage to drive improvements to fisheries and aquaculture via their supply chain. Um, specifically, we look to rebuild depleted um, fisheries, um, reduce the environmental impacts uh, associated with aquaculture and fisheries, um, protect ocean biodiversity, and also um, address social issues in, um, in fisheries. So. That's the organization. I'm the Aquaculture Information Manager, so I'm responsible for research. And also we have fish source aquaculture profiles, which assess management of various um, aquaculture industries uh, across the globe. I mean, my background is about uh, 20 years of um, aquaculture started out with um, small scale cage systems in Bangladesh, actually. and worked in um, Asia, was based at the network of aquaculture centers in Asia Pacific, again, focusing on small-scale aquaculture. It's that livelihood angle, so as um, using small-scale uh, aquacultures to help develop people's livelihoods, and then joined SFP about five years ago. I also spent 15 years in Thailand at NACA and also worked in international relations with a uh, a leading uh, university, Mahidol University. Wow, it seems like your background is like very well suited to the role that you're yeah. currently in. That is just fascinating. Yeah, I've always I've always been interested in marine biology. Um, you know, back 
you know, if you're a small child looking at rock pools or tidal pools and you know, yeah, it's just always sort of, uh, yeah, wanted to get into it. Originally fisheries, but then um, sort of uh, studied agriculture at University of Stirling and sort of opened up a whole new, whole new world. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So to kick off the uh, topic of the day, mm. I want to start off with uh, the, the first kind of thing that I asked you guys when I met with you uh, before we were recording, when I, when I got on a call with you a week or so ago, when we're talking about the term regenerative aquaculture, for our listeners, what, what does that mean when we say that term? And then we can get into the nitty gritty of, of the research and stuff that's been done. But I want to just start off with a, a baseline understanding of what we mean when we use that term. And it's a very good question. It's, Thank you. <laughs> uh, so it's, I mean, we'll start with the sort of the background is um, you may have heard about regenerative agriculture or regen ag. Um, I would say you know, doing the research and looking into it, there's no universally agreed definition of uh, regenerative agriculture, but it basically means um, protection of natural resources and also enhancing them. So um, building upon, yeah, enhancing nature. Um, it's It's been applied, regenerative um, aquaculture has been applied to um, seaweed culture. So with that carbon sequestration angle, uh, also to bivalves as, you know, uh, creating a habitat. And I've seen it applied to, in certain papers, to um, cages, um, marine cages where, feed is enhancing wild fisheries um so 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 yeah so that's the background to it um but i can i can certainly go into you know um how i see it with regards to um shrimp farming and basically the ecosystem services that mangroves um, provide sure yeah that's interesting because <laughs> that's if anybody you know we work here at gsa and if anybody knows the history of gsa or what was originally GAA, the Global Aquaculture Alliance, it was kind of born from these issues regarding shrimp farming and the impacts on mangrove ecosystems. And that was, it was kind of a big issue 25, 30 years ago. And so they, a bunch of people got together um, and George Chamberlain headed up this, the, the kind of birth of this organization to help address that problem. So it's kind of like very near and dear to our hearts here at GSA. So it's really interesting to hear your perspective on this. So yeah, let's get right into it. I want to make sure that I note that, is it okay if I share the links to the technical report and everything? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay, great. So if you look in, if our, any of our listeners are interested in reading every kind of little detail about this project, you can um, go to the show notes and, and click the link to look at the, read through the technical report. And then some of the, um, you know, there, there's some key takeaways, kind of a more summarized version here. Um, that we'll link to as well. But, um, you know, the technical report is labeled how coastal shrimp farming can support effective mangrove regeneration. So can you kind of just walk us through what was done, what the findings were and everything? Just kind of give us, give us the whole rundown. Okay. <laughs> uh, how much time you well, got? Yes, it's, it's, there's, there's lots of interesting avenues and, um, and yeah, it, we, we, which we can go. Um, I would start with the purpose of the report, which was basically... Um, to look at how, you know, farm shrimp industry and, and, and indeed its supply chain um, 
can be a positive force for change in coastal areas where historically and to a certain extent currently um, mangrove uh, loss is um, is or has taken place. Um, that's powerful narrative or that, 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 that narrative you often hear about, um, you know, if you've mentioned shrimp farming, coastal shrimp farming, I get this with, with my friends and you say you work in aquaculture and then, you know, you mention shrimp and then it's, well, does that, you know, doesn't that destroy mangroves? So one of the first uh, parts of this study uh, was to look at um, the timeline. Um, so um, it looks at five countries, five major shrimp producing countries. So that's um, China, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. And I, there's a wealth of information on mangrove cover out there from lots of really good sources. So, and so I looked at the, the, the time frame, the trends, and it was really interesting because it kind of breaks down into three parts, if that makes sense. So if I, would you like me to go through those? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just go. I want to get everybody that's listening. I want them to get kind of a broad understanding of kind of what, what happened here. Right. So it's looking at these um, sort of timelines in these um, five countries, where, which are major uh, shrimp producers. Um, so you go historically, so before coastal shrimp farming really took off, say in the 1980s and uh, 1990s, you look at, was looking at cover um, and you see that mangrove cover is fell um, quite significantly in, all, in pretty much, yes, all these five countries. Um, so various reasons. Um, so there's um, logging, charcoal production, and, you know, in, in the case of Vietnam, uh, deforestation due to um, conflict and war. Um, so mangrove loss was taking place um, before shrimp farming. And then when you look at shrimp farming, when it took off in the 1980s and the 1990s, you see the increase in um, production. And you'll see a, at the same time a sort of corresponding loss of uh, mangrove through that time, time period. Um, this um, correlation obviously obviously doesn't automatically uh, mean causation, but when you dig into the literature, uh, uh, the extensive literature on this is that you know mangrove, um, sorry, shrimp farming was having an impact uh, on on mangrove on mangrove cover. I think um, it's it's a, a really interesting point actually to bring up that this was an issue beforehand. This what it wasn't it. The loss of mangrove habitat is not solely due to the shrimp farming. Mm. And, and I think that people can get a little tunnel visioned in that sometimes and thinking that like, oh, once we started fish shrimp farming, you know, we started destroying all the mangroves. But it's it's yeah, good to good keep point. in mind, yeah, that there's other factors that play into it here that, yes. that were in place beforehand. So that's really interesting. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it was certainly, uh, certainly, you know, from that takeoff um, from 1980s, 1990s and the boom. This uh, you know, certainly had a major major impact, um, and then we come to 1999, which um, is a, uh, a significant date um, because um, there's the Ramsar Convention on uh, Wetlands. Um, so it's an international um, a treaty signed by uh, multiple countries, and in 1999 they had a resolution. Um, which was to halt the expansion of, of um, 
agriculture activities that were sort of, uh, adversely impacting coastal um, coastal habitats, including mangroves. And so, was looking at that point from 1999 onwards, and there's some great, really great um, tools out there. There's lots of data, Global Mangrove Watch, and also Clark Labs. And you see, when I was looking at that, I was looking at the cover post-1999 in, say, four of these countries, you see the stabilization of mangrove cover. Um, so so that was certainly interesting. So that doesn't automatically mean, okay, yay, it's, you know, mangrove cover is, you know, is, is stabilization. Yeah. So it doesn't mean the situation is stable. Yeah, it doesn't mean we're good to go. <laughs> yeah, because there's a brilliant tool out there by Clark Labs, which shows land use changes. So, and they start at 1999, and they show various land changes, say mangroves to ponds, mangroves to other uses. And you dig into those and you find lots of um, uh, super, super interesting trends. Um I'll, I'll, I'll pause there in case, yeah, in case you have a question. Could you give us a little background for why mangrove forests are so vital to these ecosystems that they're a part of? Oh, absolutely. And this um, ties in with that constant, with, you know, the idea of regenerative. Uh, mangroves have uh, a wealth of ecosystem services. So um, they provide habitat for quite often iconic and endangered species. So in um, in Sundarbans, in uh, Bangladesh and West, ben- uh, West Bengal in India, it's a stronghold of the um, Royal Bengal tiger. Um, it's also habitats for overwintering, habitat for migratory species. They sequester, sequester um, carbon really effectively, um, more effectively, you know, quicker than, say, ter- terrestrial forests. They provide nurseries for fisheries, for wild fisheries. They um, uh, protect coastlines from uh, the adverse impacts of storm surges. Um, and on top of that, they're a livelihood option. You know, they provide livelihoods for coastal communities. And um, also they have, like, you know, that's the like, cultural aspect to it. Um, so they, you know, they're part of, Part of people's lives, they're part of literature, part of music. They're, you know, um, like a like a rainforest. When I was working at the New England Aquarium, which is in Boston, uh, we used to they had a big mangrove exhibit. With, it was like the Shark and Ray Tush Tank, and it was designed to look like a mangrove. And we talked a lot about mangroves, and we often compared it to uh, like salt marshes that we have here in New England because it's kind of that buffer between ocean and land, and kind of like. You know, a lot of the filtering and the cleaning happens there and, and habitat for not like a nursery habitat for, for baby organisms and stuff. So that that's kind of for anyone who's in our area, that may be a good comparison kind of for like the role that it plays in the ecosystem. Not to mention they're so beautiful. I think one of my yes. favorite seafood industry adjacent memories is I was on a field trip after one of our gold conferences in 2018 in Ecuador And we went up to northern Ecuador, which is very rural and very like it's a very beautiful jungle habitat. And we got to go on these boats through this river, which was just surrounded by mangroves and went to visit some shrimp farms out there. And it was 
probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been, mm-hmm. and I treasure that memory so much. Didn't mean to interrupt, Paul, or throw off no. your, your train of thought. No, <laughs> just no, trying no, to gas it's, up it's mangroves. Like, <laughs> it's like, no, it's just the wealth of ecosystem services that they, they provide. And um, when we're talking about regeneration of mangroves, so bear in mind, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's listed several key ecosystem services. So when you're thinking regenerative and regenerating mangroves, you're thinking bringing back all of these services. So not just, you know, one or two. Um, and so, yeah, that's a key, a, a key thing to remember. Um, right. So it, it, so far we've been focusing on kind of the impacts that it has, the, the let's be honest, the negative impacts that shrimp farming has had in the past on mangrove habitats. How can we look at this from a regeneration point of view? What, what impacts are shrimp farms having now on mangrove habitats? Has that kind of flipped? What is, what is the deal? What, uh, you know? Where, do, yeah. where does it go from where we yeah. left off? This, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll bring it back to where we left off. There's, there's other, the, the other um, key factors is, um, you know, mangroves themselves aren't a ideal location, certainly for intensive farms. So you, the, the acidic soils, they're consistently waterlogged with, you know, uh, with the tide and, you know, it's access as well. So, I mean, the... The industry, certainly like I'd say, the intensive, you know, um, industries long moved beyond the mangrove, mangrove area. Um, I was looking at, when I was looking at that sort of stabilization post 1999 of mangrove cover, uh, mangrove cover is a great indicator, but it's just, it's just one, one metric. So it's looking into, um, like what's going on be- below that, if that makes sense. So, and looking at land use changes, and what you'd see is that in certain countries, um, and specifically certain areas within within them, that you know, mangrove lost to mangrove to ponds. That was the, the sort of land use change that was that was still taking place, um, but less so, or, or not at all in others, but. And this is like this, this, this is a super interesting um, uh, finding. So it's land use changes. So you have mangroves to ponds. What you're also seeing is ponds to mangroves. So there's uh, there's a lot of you know sort of interplay. So and also there was mangroves coming back from um, areas classified as open water to a lesser extent. So there was. Yeah, this, 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 obviously this, okay, ponds to mangroves, what's going on, going, going on here? So let's, let's dig into that. And there's various reasons, um, for that, that, you know, um, that abandoned ponds being restored, whether that be naturally or, you know, actively. Um, but also that ponds were changing their character to incorporate mangroves. And I think that's, um, certainly what's happening in, um, Vietnam with integrated mangrove um, shrimp aquaculture. Um, so so some, can, can you, can yeah. I pause you there? Can, can you go into that a little bit more? The, so we're talking about a shift from farming shrimp in, in mangroves to man-made ponds. Is that, am I following that correctly? It's the, the uh, sort of abandoned ponds uh, in certain, in certain cases are being recolonized uh, by mangroves. Um, okay. But also the active ponds were changing their character 
to incorporate mangrove, uh, mangroves okay. within them, which you, you dig into certainly in the situation in Vietnam where the, the sort of integrated mangrove aquaculture is is promoted. Whether that's truly regenerative is another another question we can probably we can probably get into. What I will say is um, with land use with with these land use changes, so you would see changes from say mangroves to other which predominantly um, would be agriculture or urban urban development, you didn't see the reverse of that. So there wasn't um, so other back to mangroves. So in summary, it was the um, abandoned ponds and to a lesser extent uh, open water were providing the, the setting for mangrove um, uh, mangroves to come back or, you know, reclaiming right it's nature yeah. reclaiming what's what's hers right? yes <laughs> potentially yeah potentially so there was such so yeah i just started digging into the reasons the reasons um the reasons for that and that yeah that this, this setting is this you know it's, it's an opportunity here for uh for the shrimp shrimp industry so let's let's dig into that yeah so was there a reduction in farming overall in um, production that kind of Led to that because, like you, you know, when you talk about abandoned ponds and stuff, uh, did production change? Did it go further inland? Did it? Was there a, a drop in production, or like, like how was this able to just kind of shift? Yeah, I was just say the production trend is still upwards. So overall, um, brackish water trim production is is is, is increasing. Um, certainly, there's this sort of like intensive elements. There's, is uh, if you look at I was looking at Thailand and it's like and you'll see that um, it's still, still you know well uh, still you know increasing but that you see that ponds are being uh, created from other types of land use which kind of fits into that narrative of the the, the, sh- the shrimp industry certainly in a country like Thailand and also um, looking at China and India it's um, that yeah they they're not they're not citing um, ponds and farms in 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 mangroves in mangroves in, in other other types predominantly after agriculture but still in in I think it's Vietnam in Indonesia you see that uh, mangroves are still uh, ponds are sorry have still been um, cited in in mangroves so so in certain certain parts of those um, of those countries. So would you attribute that um, no longer citing ponds in mangroves? Is that attributed, in your opinion, to like an advancement in technology and industry or, you know, it just a, I don't, I don't really, I'm just trying to wrap my head around kind of yeah. why that change happened. Yeah, certainly, the, you know, it's, it's, it's not an ideal, suitable habitat for um, shrimp farming, uh, mangroves, certainly not for intensive, but also there's a whole... I've, if you look at the regulations and on planning and siting in in these countries, you know, um, in response to the um, um, the uh, Ramsar resolution, it's you know it's it's prohibited generally to, to if you look at special ponds, um, it's prohibited to site new farms in. Um, so it's mostly and, so it's mostly policy change that's had the biggest impact. A bit, of, a bit of both. It's market incentives as well. You see the, um, the certifications. Um, if you look into their criteria on um, you know on shrimp farms and um, siting, um, that again it's the you know new new ponds 
Um, but also then we look into all the, all the set of regulations, all the market incentives. They also encourage, um, restoration of, of historic losses as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, it's, yeah, it's, you know, try to pin, you can't, you can't by percentage wise, you can't say who, which, which is most effective, but there's a general trend to, of continuous improvement. And it's, it, and it's powered by regulations, market incentives. It's, um, um, powered by, you know, the industry in that moving beyond the mangrove, uh, mangrove system. But yeah, so, yeah. So did this research that you guys were conducting, it sounds very informal when I say you guys, but when, <laughs> when this research was being conducted, did it include just literature review or, or did it, did you do some of your own kind of hands-on like boots on the ground research? Did you interview people um, that were involved? Because I'm curious about, I really like th- what you were just talking about, this idea of um, kind of a theme of continuous improvement and and adopting these practices, these best practices to, you know, you're not just farming shrimp, you're also kind of playing a part in the kind of rebuilding of these habitats and things like that. And is that something that is generally supported by these producers? Or do you think it's something that they consider almost like a nuisance, like they don't want to do, but they have to do? Like, I'm just, the, the general attitude towards it um, kind of, what what you've seen? Oh well, it wasn't. Yeah, it was a death study, um, but it was um, it was reviewed by um, various um, um, organisations as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a really good question about the sort of like what it's sort of almost like what the incentives that the producers see in it is that yeah that, beyond yeah. just like sales and like you know obviously cash is king and you're gonna do what you what you have to 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 keep the the money coming in. Uh, and if that means, you know, uh, subscribing to a particular uh, standard or certification that includes this, that's one thing. But I, I'm curious if they are also have the mindset of like, yeah, we're doing this is the right thing to do. Or, it, you know, like, I'm just curious from a people standpoint, how it's been accepted. Hmm. Oh, super, super interesting question. Um, I mean, certainly from improve just in the whole concept of, of improved management improved management means you know it's not just um, environmental sustainability but you're talking you're also talking about like that sort of sustainability with respect to food you know, food production and the, that they yeah. can continue to produce um, industry stability and yeah. is that uh, there's certainly that ang- angle um also, you know, uh, with regards to mangroves themselves, they, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the services they provide is that they have that coastal protection element that sort of ties in with um, action on on climate change. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's just, I might have to come back to you on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. It's my job to ask the tough question. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully this isn't a too tough a question. I have one. Uh, so with appropriate management of these mangrove areas, how long does it take for mangroves to recover? Yeah, well, that is a very, another very good question. Um, so I did, you know, and, and one, one that was asked. Um, okay, so I would say it's a broad timeline, probably about 10 years. Um, okay. But within that 10 years, there's... Um, some indicators of that that success is going to be likely. So you'd be um, sort of the evidence of early regrowth, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, so 
yeah, I'd say broadly 10 years. It wasn't that, that, that was from the literature. It wasn't, you know, an exact figure. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of variables as well. I, I just wasn't sure. I mean, you hear about like trying to restore um, reefs. reefs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was just curious, you know, what, what a rough timeline was. If, if everything's, you know, going ideally with, with, the, with the proper management, what, the, what we would determine as successfully regenerated. And, and you know, I think 10 years, I, my guess was, was probably between somewhere around the five to 10 year mark as well. Yeah, this was from... Uh, dug into mangrove restoration guidelines so it's, yeah and um so the so early regrowth would be you know actually probably would fit within that be sort of if you know around five years but then sort of more established would be yeah sort of probably looking at um, 10 years mm-hmm. that was when they were looking at um encouraging natural restoration which is another angle of this conversation so <laughs> as opposed to planting um so the, like breaking down the walls of abandoned ponds allowing the sort of natural hydrology the tidal system to return mm-hmm. and, and then encouraging uh mangroves to come back naturally um so because of that natural restoration supports um the the sort of regeneration, as in, like the 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 restoration, would be more representative of of the of of neighbouring mangrove systems. Um, I mean, you touch upon um, planting, which is you know people think about mangrove restoration. You think about you know planting mangroves, mm-hmm. which is um, potentially applicable in certain circumstances but when you go into the mangrove restoration guidelines it's always natural restoration is encouraged yeah and um uh yeah it's um another angle of it is scale so <laughs> right <laughs> always okay so this w- was there more in the timeline or can i move on to the oh no yeah move, yeah sorry yeah okay yeah no worries i just want to make sure we didn't miss anything so this um these findings this technical report was published in December 2022, so it hasn't been out for very long, but I'm curious what the reception has been, kind of what you have seen as, as results after uh, putting this out there. I've been um, contacted um, by a few um, uh, representatives of mangrove stakeholders, certain um Contacted by um, journalists who want you know want to learn more um, podcasts podcasts indeed <laughs> <laughs> so, um, also um, those involved in mangrove restoration um, because this, um, here at SFP you know uh, we have liaise with partners seafood buyers um, so we are actually we we are looking to um, identify projects that are involved in mangrove restoration mm-hmm. um, and so it's great for them for other me like reaching out to them i've already you know some some have already reached out to me um so so you know so that we can uh, match them you know get see if, get them uh, identify them to our partners and see you know see if they can work together so that, so that's great um so so yeah, I encourage more of that. Actually, if that's for your listeners, if you if you're interested, please you know reach out reach out to our team. We have you know um, yeah we're, we're here to help and 
Um, we've developed tool, another uh, mapping tool that we can that kind of can assist us in this um, in this process as well. Cool. And then it's sort of the whole concept of you know, the SFP and our aquaculture approach of um, driving improvements at scale. Um, so yeah, it was, we're, we're here to help. That's fantastic. So what, what is next? What's the next step in this specific initiative that you see? But I mean, you just kind of highlighted some, some points, but, um, you know, in your mind, what do you see as the next thing that needs to be done? Uh, the next thing we're doing is we're working on right now, say at an advanced beta uh, version is a mapping tool. Um, so we're working with an organization called uh, Longline who pro- provide uh, geographic maps of various farms. And, um, so you can see where shrimp farms are on, on a map in uh, four countries. Um, so India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. That's overlaid with a maps of mangroves. So what you'll see, you'll get a high level overview and um, you'll see mangroves, you'll see if ponds are located within these areas or adjacent to, you'll see the types of ponds, so whether they're extensive, intensive or semi-intensive or, and importantly, um, abandoned inactive ponds. So you'll get a sense of where to target improvements. So where you can, where partners can say, okay, there's a lot of abandoned ponds in this area. This is, you know, it's more of a, a hot spot to focus attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be available at the Boston and uh, Barcelona. For, if you, you come to the SFP booth at the Boston and Barcelona um, Seafood Expos and we'll be able to like show you, show you more. Um, we want our partners. Um, we have the Asian Farm Shrimp um, supply chain roundtable. We're super interested in this, and we're looking for projects um, that you know that they that they can get involved in. Um, so, so yeah, that's uh, that's a high level summary of the, of the next the next steps. Great, fantastic. And if anyone does want to visit your booth, I know we'll be stopping by. Yep. Um, but if anyone does want to visit the booth at Cena, do you know happen to know your booth number yet? No, we don't. Um, and I, I'm not there, but my um, brilliant colleagues Jenna, Brad, and Dave will be there. Um, okay. Whereas, well, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I don't know the, the booth number as yet. Yeah, no worries. No, well, we well, can always add it later to the show notes. Potentially, if you know before the before Cena takes place. Yeah. For sure, and we'll make sure that we stop by and uh, and get get a catch. We'll bring the microphone over and and catch up on everything, see what improvements have been made, you know, in a month. <laughs> so uh, we're getting a little bit close to time. Um, I don't want to go for too long, but what else do you want to get out there? What is the the message that you want to send to our listeners? Um, I certainly want to. It's another angle of um, of restoration and regeneration. I, I keep you know, flipping between restoration and regeneration because basically, you know, um, in the literature, they're, they're used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, when when saying either restoration or regeneration, it's an emphasis on bringing back ecosystem services. Um, there's the, another angle to this, um, so and that's conducting these activities at scale. 
Um, if you think about the um, ecosystem services, you know, one of them is protection. And it's great to restore, you know, sort of individual ponds or adapt individual ponds to include aquaculture, um, to include mangroves. But you can imagine it's be far more impactful to do that across a scale. Mm-hmm. So across whole um, zones or landscapes or, um, um, or areas. So then that ties in with um, SFP's approach to aquaculture, which is driving improvements at scale, which is called zonal management, um, just basically addressing cumulative impacts. And we, we certainly see that, you know, the, the benefits of um, restoring ponds at scale with regards to, uh, you know, um, coastal protection. This is maximizing the benefits. So there's certainly another, another angle, uh, another angle um, to it. Um, another uh, thing, I sh- uh, approach I should mention that's, um, that came, came up in the literature and I find absolutely fascinating as well is um, there's a, uh, a newer approach. It's called Climate Smart Shrimp. And that's um, when existing, say, an extensive pond um, intensifies production and therefore um, reduces its pond footprint. Um, and because of that, it gives up potentially more, some of that uh, former area to be able to give up to mangroves and incorporate mangroves within their farm. I find that's uh, another uh, potential you know, way of adapting its existing ponds and mm. support regeneration. Um, that's uh, under initiatives by uh, Conservation International, I believe, and I find that that's that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I, it's, I, I I always I am a positive person, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and and a researcher. And I recently um, read a paper in Nature, which was written by a group of authors who twenty years ago had written. Uh, Another paper which had, you know, been fairly critical of, of aquaculture, um, and then twenty years later, the same authors got together and did a, you know, revisited it and sort of and just and demonstrated that, you know, and cited that improvements have been made, improvements to siting, and they specifically uh, mentioned that um, the issues with mangrove loss that had been highlighted in twenty years ago had been greatly reduced and. It's yeah. It's a it's a journey of continuous improvement towards sustainability. If that if so, you know, it's just keep keep on that journey. That's fantastic. And if any of our listeners want to get involved uh, with any of this, if this is of interest to them, what what is a a, a way that they can be involved? It's um, my contact. If you have my my con yeah, use my contacts uh, details. Uh, visit certainly um, visit visit the habitat uh, regeneration page at SFP. Um, so we've got you know a great team, and like I said, we're looking for projects to for, for our partners to partner with. Um, so, so yeah, just reach out. So that that website will have all the contact information needed. We can link to that in the show notes for sure. All right, Justin, you got anything else? No? All right, Paul, any you know the last message that you want to send? Yeah, if you can uh, leave us with okay. a message. Um, and it's there's an opportunity here to. I mean, we haven't, 
we've not got we've not gone into SDGs, um, the Sustainable Development Goals, but yeah. certainly with those ecosystem services that we mentioned, so sort of the protection, the habitats, the the coastal livelihoods, there's it 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 ties in with Sustainable Development Goals, mm-hmm. and it also ties in with. Um, uh, it's the environmental, social, and governance uh, uh, criteria and objectives of of uh, multiple countries, uh, countries, uh, companies, as, uh, including seafood companies. So, this this there's a you know, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity here. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us, and uh, I'm hoping we can have you on again to talk about either changed with this in the future or um, anything else that you want to get into. So thank you yeah. so much for joining us. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you very much, oh, Paul. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, I should add that um, when I was mentioning um, improvements at scale, um, so uh, my colleague Jenna is will be with you very short. Um, we're very soon to talk about aquaculture improvement projects. That's true. Um, yep. So that's, that's how we realize improvements. It's, that's the model. We, um, that we advocate to drive improvements at scale. So, um, um, yeah, that's it's um, it's a nice link with, um, between um, regeneration and uh, aquaculture improvement projects or APES. So sure, try try not to use too many acronyms. So. Uh, you can't avoid them yeah. in this industry. <laughs> I think people would be uncomfortable if we didn't use them. <laughs> yeah, right. At this point, so that's great. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Um, we're pretty excited about making that episode happen too. Mm-hmm. That's going to be coming up. So, uh, Paul, I just want to say one more thank you to you for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Oh, can I, I can I say some some quick thanks as well? Absolutely. So I want to thank um, the fantastic um, Aqua team. So it's Dave, Brad, Jenna, and Elena have been very supportive through you know through the research. And a big shout out to the comms team at SFP as well. So they've been absolutely brilliant on get, getting on board and um, with their commitment to this has been astounding. And thanks to um, Longline, so um, Marie, Diogo and Antonio who are working on this tool um, currently. So uh, yeah, it's, um, thank you very much. <laughs> and thanks to you for having me. Happy to do it. Happy to have you on. Um, and we'll talk to you soon, all right? All right, thanks a lot. Folks, that was our conversation with Paul Volkoff of Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something, and I hope you will make sure that you are subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen, so every time a new episode comes out, it'll automatically be downloaded to your device. Follow us on Twitter, at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact the podcast for any reason, fill out our online form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you like our show and you want to support us, then you can do that by leaving a rating or review on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. That's right. We appreciate everybody who's already done that. And remember, if you like what we do and you want to be more involved with the work that we do at GSA, you may want to consider becoming a member. You can find all of the information about that at globalseafood.org slash membership. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye.